The Energy Gang is brought to you by Sense. Sense lets you know what devices are on in your home and how much energy they're using so you can save money and see what's happening all from your smartphone. It's a little orange box that connects to your electric panel and samples power over a million times per second. To find out more, visit sense.com slash energy gang. That's sense like common sense. Sense.com slash energy gang. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. I've fallen victim to a lot of myths in my day. I thought if you dropped a penny off a big building, you could kill someone. Nope, they don't fall fast enough. I always thought Napoleon was extremely short. He was five foot seven. Not that short. I always thought if you wake a sleepwalker, something horrible will happen. They'd actually be fine, most likely. It's easy to just think something is true after you've heard it enough. And when those myths are deeply tied to our belief systems, they can be extremely difficult to break. Anyone who's been following U.S. climate politics knows that. So today, we're going to dissect a few energy myths that keep rearing their ugly little heads. We'll each bring one to the table that's caught our attention recently. And then, in the second half of the program, we're going to revisit the swampy politics of solar in Alabama, South Carolina, and Florida. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw are with us from Washington, D.C., my fellow mythbusters. Catherine, uh, what's a myth that you once believed? So, first of all, boring bonehead questions are not cool. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you uh, heard Tesla's quarterly conference call, you'd know what she was talking about. Elon dismissed a bunch of analysts who were asking questions about money and instead went to YouTube commenters. Anyway, your myth, Catherine. Yes, sorry. So my myth is that I thought that I was related to Senator Bobby Byrd. Um, I run past his tombstone all the time. I was very fond of him when he was in the Senate, and I really thought I was related to him because I was related to the birds of Virginia. As it turns out, Bobby Byrd was an orphan, so I could not possibly have been related to him. Um, but I harbored that for a long time and uh, still run by his gravesite fondly. Have you ever done, uh, what is it, uh, 23andMe? the genetic testing thing? I have done it. Oh, you have? That's how they caught the Golden State Killer. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, luckily I haven't killed anybody. (laughs) (laughs) We hope. We hope. You slay us with your words, Jigger. Aww. What did you find out? Did you bust any myths about your heritage? No. It honestly told me I was only 99.99% Indian. (laughs) Because my, my wife was 100% Indian. And then it also, like, gave me all this health stuff, which luckily was, you know, like, I was did not have a lot of the tracers for the health uh, tests that they run. Good. So you'll stay with us for a while here. Uh, what, are, what are some other myths that you believed that, uh, you've, you, that have been busted for you? Well, for me, when I was a kid, I was used to, like, believe all of that, like, if you swallow a seed, it's going to grow in your belly thing. And so, so that got busted early on. But the thing that really got busted when I was in college was the whole, you only use 10% of your brain. Like that's a total myth. You use almost all of it. And so like all those movies about like Scarlett Johansson becoming some super person by using all of her brain, like that's just not true. Well, how about if you jump right before the air, the um, elevator crashes? You don't die, right? <laughs> I, I do. I don't know about that one, but I do know that jumping in the elevator when you start to go down is very fun. <laughs> <laughs> okay, two quick housekeeping items before we begin. Firstly, send in your recorded comments to us at podcast at greentechmedia.com. Do you have a myth that you want us to address? 
do you have a question? Uh, we've gotten a bunch of really good questions, and we're going to start sorting through them and maybe base some shows of the Energy Gang and the Interchange off of those questions. So please keep them coming in. Also, just one other item. Um, recently, we posted a couple branded podcasts. These are shows that are paid for by an advertiser. Uh, to cover a topic of interest to them. And we work really hard to make these pieces of content that are directly relevant to you and genuinely worth your time. And importantly, to differentiate them from our regular programming, what you know we're doing right now. And we have gotten a lot of positive responses from those episodes, but recently we did get some pushback from a couple people over how we're labeling them. And I want you to know that we take your feedback very seriously. And we've established, uh, I think, a high level of trust here on the podcast. You know, you know what the three of us say during this conversation is independent. It's not shaped by advertisers. And I would never, ever want to betray that trust. So going forward, we're going to make sure that we're more explicit up front that something is a branded podcast. And, you know, we are likely to have a few of them scattered throughout the year. Um, Again, these are designed to be relevant and educational, not ads. But at the same time, I want to make sure that you know the difference between our content. So speaking of more clarity, with that out of the way, it is time for some additional myth busting. Each of us has chosen um, a falsity or a half-truth that we encounter regularly or that we've uh, recently encountered. And let's begin. Catherine, you have been reading Vox, and uh, Dave Roberts recently wrote a piece on how storage potentially increases emissions. The floor is yours. Yes. So first, I will stipulate David Roberts is one of my favorite reporters. He's been on the show before. We love him. We're big fans. Vox, I'm a big fan of because of their whole explainers way of dealing with topics. But he did run a story that said batteries have a dirty secret. And in the article, he actually does clarify a lot of what he's saying. Um, But some of what is in there, and certainly the title, is misleading. So I would like to set this straight. First of all, myth number one about storage, or at least that people need to really keep in mind, and I know this may sound um, obvious, but storage, battery storage, energy storage generally, and remember, it's not 100% efficient. So when I'm talking about this, it's like maybe 80%, maybe a little bit less, depending on the technology. Storage is not generation. It is not a generator. It is an energy management system. It is actually more software than it is hardware. Storage just holds energy, electrons, and releases them when they are needed. So it can help manage different kinds of technologies and different resources on the grid, but it in and of itself is not a generator. So that's just something we need to set out there, that it does not release any emissions. All it does is hold on to electrons and release them when they're needed. And to be fair, David does lay that out in the piece. Absolutely. That is totally true. Storage depends entirely on how it's operated thus. So the second big assumption that was in um, some of the research that has been done is what energy storage actually does. And there is an assumption that it does energy arbitrage and almost no storage does energy arbitrage. And what that means is that it charges during off-peak times and discharges during on-peak times. So it's all on this economic charge and discharge. The problem is that storage is not exposed to wholesale price signals. Storage is only going to react based on what it is paid to do and what is in its economic interests. So that's frequency regulation. It could be voltage response now, demand response, capacity, not arbitrage. 
So if you want it to be low emission and make sure that the lowest greenhouse gas emitting resources are used, then you need to make it in its economic interest and give it those signals to be able to be used then. It completely depends on when the signal is. And then finally, the one of the myths out there is that the more renewables you put on the grid, the cleaner storage will be. Well, yes, the cleaner the grid will be, but the issue again is where and when and how is storage used. So I just want people to step back and not look at energy storage as a generating resource that either has or doesn't have greenhouse gas emissions, because that's not at all what it is. What it is is an energy management system. And I think what we need to then think about is where do we need it on the grid where it will make the grid cleaner and will allow our resources, whatever they are. And it will make coal plant or gas plant capacity factors better because of what it does. So we just need to make sure that we cite it correctly, that we give it the right incentives and signals to know when to use it. So in summary, batteries don't cause higher emissions. Bad policy causes higher emissions. (laughs) The only thing that can protect a bad battery with fossil fuels is a good battery with renewable energy. (laughs) Boom, you've got it. That's great. And we do. It is all about policy. It's all about markets. It's all about making sure that you give it the right signal at the right time, because batteries are just dumb, except that they have software that can then manage them in whatever way you design it to be managed. So why are we talking about this? David Roberts did write a really good piece, and he's very nuanced in the piece itself. But the headline, of course, is, um, you know, it it leads one to a different conclusion. Yeah, right. We all do it. I mean, hey, I've done it plenty of times. So um, I know how that goes. But the story itself is quite good. The question is, like, how does this myth play out in policymaking? Like, are you talking to people who are collecting data or making rules and regulations that believe this myth? Um, Is it confusing in any way when there's actually policy involved? Yes, absolutely. So in California, they're doing this right now where they're requiring solar and storage pairings. And that is not necessarily the best thing to do at all, because it could still not reduce emissions when you have when you have to force these two resources together, it still may have nothing to do with emissions. Instead, you're just controlling the customer's uh, demand on their own site. So I think uh, we need to think about this much more holistically. Several Congresses ago, when we were contemplating a clean energy standard, it was when the Democrats were in charge and um, the Senate was thinking through, you know, what would a what federal clean energy standard look like? We tried to figure out how do we fit storage in, and it's really tricky because it is not a generation resource; it manages everything else, and you know, whatever happens with batteries and other storage technologies, it's going to get cleaner over time as the grid gets cleaner over time. So it's very difficult to fit into something like that. It's really is more of an energy management tool. And we have to include it in all of our policymaking holistically, but to force it in to to force it to be with renewables all the time is probably the worst thing you can do. It's it's like saying, you know, Calling batteries either clean or dirty is like saying, you know, voltage optimization is clean or dirty, or that a, an inverter is necessarily clean or dirty, or really any other type of grid technology is clean or dirty. It's it's a control system, as you say. Yeah. And so essentially, you could you could use it to manage greenhouse gases much better. You could optimize it such that it is making sure that it is done in the cleanest, most efficient way. I mean, that is a, a huge, um, I'm sorry. Um, that's a huge benefit. But to just force it to attach to renewables is not the way to go about it. 
Well, and the the whole mixing of batteries with solar, batteries with wind is it has really nefarious roots, which is that you know that solar and wind are variable, and therefore batteries are needed to firm the power when no such thing is required. Yeah, we that's a whole separate discussion, and I think on a super saturated renewable grid, you need to have batteries in order to increase the economic value of renewables. But that's perhaps separate from the reliability. Issue. Um, there are plenty of ways to manage that. Uh, certainly opens up a, a couple of doors for some very interesting conversations about what storage can and can't do, and why it's important, and when it's not necessarily needed. So, thanks, Catherine. That was a good one. Sure. Jigger, over to your myth: solar is only for rich Democrats. Argue against that. So, in um, 2016, Priceonomics did a survey of 25,000 households in. Um, in California for folks who have gone solar from 1997 to 2015. And what they found was the Republicans were actually five times more likely in California to go solar than Democrats. That in fact, um, when you did marketing pieces, when you did, you know, sort of other types of customer lead generation, you actually got more Republicans to respond to the marketing messages and others that solar was using than Democrats. I would love to see more data on the Republican piece around the rest of the country. But we do have a lot of really interesting anecdotal evidence in the Southeast, the rise of the Green Tea Party and other solar choice advocates who have been instrumental in pushing forward state solar policies. Just recently in the congressional appropriations process, um, the DOE and the DOE Solar Technologies Office uh, got a bunch of money beyond what they actually budgeted for. And so members of Congress, Republican members of Congress, actually gave uh, you know, R&D efforts and, and solar efforts more money. And what I would say is I actually think that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, given how much solar and wind are in rural areas, because that's where you build 200-acre solar farms, um, it makes sense that the solar industry is, you know, giving generously, and you see that with this particular uh, congressional cycle, uh, to their local representatives as an insurance policy. So you're like, well, you're the, you're the Republican congressman from this particular district that my solar farm's in. Here's a $1,000 check. And that makes complete sense. I think that the other study from Priceonomics, though, is more instructive because it's in California and it's four residential rooftops. And so it really is something that, you know, like that I think is more pure to sort of the Republican versus Democrat label as opposed to the larger meta trends, which is really more around the fact that it's cheaper to build wind farms and solar farms in rural areas. And let's not forget that there was a very interesting mix of people across the political spectrum supporting solar in the very early days, you know, 40 years ago. There were a lot of like back to the earth folks who were definitely more liberal, but there were a lot of like anti-government, anti-monopoly people in the very early days who, you know, would probably be classified as on the right in some way, um, who were really supportive of solar. And that continues today. It was really Pete Wilson and Arnold Schwarzenegger that pushed solar in in California. It was really George Bush that introduced the 30% tax credit and then the eight-year extension in 2008. It was, you know, Lingle in Hawaii that really pushed the 35% tax credit and grant program in Hawaii, right? It was Christy Todd Whitman that, that presided over 
the first solar programs in New Jersey, right? And so I think that it has actually been Republican governors in general that's really pushed a lot of this policy. And Democratic governors have come to it more recently. But when it really mattered from 1996 to 2004, it was a lot of Republican governors. So, fact, solar is increasingly bipartisan on the local level. It's not really a controversial thing, and it's not just for the rich. So finally, my pick is uh, the result of a recent dust-up in the energy Twitter sphere over whether wind and solar cause electricity price rises. This is one of the reasons why I thought about a Mythbusters episode because, um, you know, this just came up and a lot of people were responding to it. And it's an argument that comes up quite a bit, less so these days, but has been pretty prominent over the last eight years. Michael Schellenberger is... um, a co-founder of the Breakthrough Institute. He's a current California gubernatorial candidate. He penned two op-eds in Forbes that outright blamed nationwide retail electricity prices on wind and solar. So we've mentioned Schellenberger on this podcast. Um, He's a nuclear advocate. He's increasingly kind of isolated himself by taking a really hard stance against renewables. Um, But while many of his former colleagues at the Breakthrough Institute have kind of taken a more conciliatory stance, uh, and a lot of people in the nuclear industry or some in the nuclear industry are talking about kind of making friends with renewables, Schellenberger has hardened his disdain for wind and solar. And so when he published two pieces claiming that wind and solar are the direct reason for retail price hikes across the U.S., and in other countries, and that they inherently cause price increases because of their need to build out like transmission infrastructure and, 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 you know, you need to balance them with fossil fuels, he claims, power uh, market experts jumped at the opportunity to respond saying, hey, guess what? Uh, The causes of electricity price rises are very nuanced. And I just thought it was a very interesting debate that's worth talking about. So I kind of wanted your responses first. Uh, Jigger, I know that you're kind of frustrated that we're even having this conversation, but I do think it's relevant among, you know, this conversation about bigger myths. What was your response to the piece or pieces? Look, I, I don't love talking about Michael because I honestly think he has a screw loose and I think he honestly just wants to get attention. And he writes this stuff not because there's any truth to any of it, but just because he's so desperate for attention that he'll do anything to get it. And, you know, he's running for governor in California for that purpose. I think that there's a, another conversation to be had about Michael's tactics and strategy, but I want to keep it more to the argument. No, but this is what I'm saying. I don't want to normalize his like dysfunction, right? I mean, the, the notion that, that you should throw out like years of research from the National Renewable Energy Laboratory that proves otherwise is crazy, right? Every single piece that's been studied on renewable portfolio standards in this country has shown that, in fact, except for some of the very early renewable portfolio standards, almost all of them have actually completely paid for themselves, right? Not only did they not increase rates by 1% a year, which is what we budgeted, but they actually, in, in most cases, have raised rates by a total of 1% you know, like in, in the entirety of the renewable portfolio standard policy. And in many cases, it's actually reduced overall costs because of the negative impacts on wholesale power prices, which is why Exelon and everybody like hates renewable portfolio standards because it hurts the rest of their, you know, generation mix. But I just think that the data has come out of the Department of Energy. So when I read the piece, I was like, wow, this guy doesn't know how to read. He does cite EIA data that shows a bunch of states have seen 
extreme price increases in the retail sector. Uh, and then a bunch of folks on Twitter and in subsequent response pieces showed that uh, those prices were not adjusted for inflation. So if you actually look across many of those states, there were either incremental price increases, price drops, um, or you know much lower price increases. Like in California, yeah, still but that's. Saw, uh, uh, but I'm just but saying that, that like it's, is... it's, it's we're starting with like the wrong data set. I mean, we're not even. We also assumes a causality, which isn't there. Um, you also have to look at more than the electric cost and look at the value, and the value is going to be different based on the different markets that all these technologies are deployed in. So there may be a lot of other values that they have that are external to what is internal in the electricity prices. So I just think it's it was um, not a nuanced take on what the value really is for wind and solar. Yeah, I mean, just to, I mean, just to put a finer point on this, right? I mean, basically, the electricity industry has raised electricity rates by about 0.6% per year since the 1960s, which is a very, very low rate, right? Much lower than inflation. Around 2000, electricity rates started going up by 3 to 5% a year for a couple of reasons. The main reason they've been going up by 3 to 5% a year is because the electric utility industry severely underinvested in the grid in the 90s, and they were making up for lost time. And then the second reason that it went up so fast is because we haven't sold more kilowatt hours. And so electricity sales in the U.S. have been largely been flat since 2003, 2005. And so when you're adding a lot more expense to fixing up the grid because you didn't fix it for 10 years, and then you actually don't sell more kilowatt hours, so you don't have a denominator by which to spread out all those investments, then you raise rates by more than twice inflation. And frankly, it's only because of solar and wind and it, their impact, along with natural gas, on the reduction of wholesale power prices, the electric, electricity rates aren't much higher. Well, also natural gas. Yeah, but natural gas is temporary, right? To be clear, natural gas has brought down electricity rates for now, but at the time at which natural gas rebounds to $4 a million BTU, which the American Gas Association says that they need to actually be profitable, then all of those savings will be erased. Yeah, and Schellenberger should focus more on all of these investments that utilities want to do to in grid modernization to uh, you know buy their gold-plated transformers rather than to try to install cheaper solar. There's a really, like, I think to, to be in fairness to our listeners, like, it's complicated. You know, there, but there's no inherent reason, as many experts have pointed out, that renewables would necessarily drive up electricity rates. Sometimes they can. Sometimes, if you know, like in Germany, where you overpaid for renewables or you just paid a premium to support a nascent industry, yeah, it's possible to have renewables drive up retail prices while simultaneously pushing down wholesale prices. But those were for policy decisions. So th those were based on policies that those countries put into place that caused that to happen. It, absolutely. And so it's possible to put policies in place that incentivize, over incentivize a particular technology. But there's nothing inherent in wind and solar that do that. It's it's a policy decision itself. No, the reason um, I the reason I hate talking about this, Stephen, is because my, like the way my parents view wind and solar is really irrelevant. 
I mean, that's the thing that I think we just don't understand is that like, there's only like 3000 people that matter in the entire country at making these decisions, public service commissioners, utility executives, you know, sometimes county commissioners, etc. And by and large, all of them are on our side, like not a single one of them read Michael Schellenberger's piece and was like, oh, God, he's dropping some knowledge on me. No, they all read the piece and was like, wow, this is the dumbest thing I've read in 10 years. And so, yes, is there a crazy lunatic in like upstate Michigan who hates wind power that read it and said, yay, Michael? Of course there is. But ultimately, like the people that we're lobbying and talking to and, you know, getting permits from to like build our next solar project, they get the fact that this is untrue. Yeah. And and I honestly, the reason why we're having this discussion is because we're not talking to your mother necessarily. Maybe she's listening. Hi. <laughs> we're not talking to a general population audience here necessarily. I mean, sure, there are plenty of general interest folks here or students listening, but largely we're discussing this for a business audience and policymakers. And we know that there are influential people who are listening to this. And so it does matter when you don't, appropriately address these types of arguments because myths tend to have residual impacts in the way that people make decisions. It can make them emboldened in their choices and unwilling to listen to others. It can give them access to bad data. And so they're probably most regulators in on the state and federal level look at this and don't give the arguments much weight anymore because everyone knows that the ship has sailed. But I do think that myths like this persist and they have a way of residually influencing the way people make decisions. So that's my argument for addressing it. Yeah. And if somebody can cite Forbes as the reason that they're making this decision, then it seems to have credibility. And I think we're about to talk about some states that aren't on the bandwagon yet. A quick pause here to talk about Sense, our supporter of the energy gang. Sense lets you keep tabs on your home, save energy and make the most of your solar investment. The same team that brought speech recognition technology to market is now focused on the home. Sense uses machine learning technology to identify the unique electrical signatures of your individual devices. Those real-time insights can let you know when your kids got home, whether your sump pump is running, or whether you left the iron on. And if you have solar, you can compare whole home energy use and solar production side-by-side, all with no monthly fee. For solar installers that want to help customers make the most of their solar investment, or for utilities that are looking to deliver more holistic energy services, Sense can help there too. To find out what Sense can do for you, visit sense.com slash energy gang. That's S-E-N-S-E, sense.com slash energy gang. Our last stop is in the southeast where we're going to tour a few states where solar politics are getting hot and swampy as summer approaches, a battle over net metering wages in South Carolina, a dispute over solar leasing continues in Florida, and a legal fight over solar fees in Alabama escalates. To Alabama first. Catherine, you've been following what's happening there. What's going on? Yeah, now don't get me wrong. I love Alabama. The Secret Sisters is one of my favorite groups to listen to. Um, but they've got some issues in their public service commission. I reached out to Katie Ottenweller from the Southern Environmental Law Center, who has really been on the tip of the spear of this. And their public utility commission is elected, first of all. The president of that commission is a woman named Twinkle Kavanaugh. One of her big sayings is pray away the EPA. She is very close to coal and loves it. So here's what's happening there. There has been a rate on the books 
um, in Alabama for about five years. It was proposed 2012-2013. And people didn't really realize it was there because it was part of the industrial standby charge that was stuck in. It did not have any verbiage about solar at all. But what it does is it levies a $5 per kilowatt month charge. So just to do the math here for a 5KW system, that's $25 a month, $300 a year. That's nine to $10,000 over the life of the system. That's just in fixed charges. There are also customer charges and everything else that are already on the bill. This doubles the payback period for solar. So because of this, there really hasn't been anybody who could have standing to fight it. Also, the processes in Alabama, the Public Service Commission, there are no public rate cases. They're completely opaque. There's no IRP process that anybody can participate in. So the only way that you can attack it is to file a formal complaint if you have standing. But nobody was installing solar. They finally have a couple of customers who just didn't even know about this charge who installed solar. They do have standing, and so they have filed a complaint. And in the law, the good news is a customer can file. um, And if a customer does, then the commission has to hold a hearing. So that is also the good news part of this is that the commission does have have to hold a hearing and hear this out. It is probably the most hostile state for clean energy out there, Um, but at least they're going to get a hearing, so we'll see what happens. And Alabama has, drumroll please, one megawatt of residential systems installed. Boy, that's contributing to a huge cost shift. (laughs) But did either of you know that outside of Hawaii, the state that has the highest average monthly electricity bills is Alabama? No way, really? Yeah, $136 a month. Um, and, you know, Connecticut's in close second at $132 a month. But uh, but yeah, no, it's pretty expensive because they've never really invested in the energy efficiency programs and all the things that you would do to help households reduce their kilowatt hour usage. So it's not that much per kilowatt hour. It's just the fact that they have air conditioning and they have to they have to use so much electricity, right? Yeah, but even on a cost per kilowatt hour basis, you know, after tariffs and fees, it's 11.26 cents a kilowatt hour. So then, given that, solar would make make sense for a lot of Alabamans if there were not these uh, these monthly per kilowatt penalties. Well, and the way we did this in, you know, solar lore past was I remember we sold a lot of solar projects in Palm Springs, California, like in 2001, two and three. And the way we used to do it is we used to put solar on their roof and then give them a new free air conditioning system that was way more energy efficient. Um, And so that's how you would do it in Alabama, too, is you'd combine energy efficiency with solar in one package. Yeah, Katie was just saying this is a little bit like Back to the Future with Georgia Power in 2013, where there were these simplistic utility arguments about people not paying their fair share if they have solar, that someone has to pay for the grid, that they'll have rolling blackouts. Well, Stephen, as you said, with a megawatt of solar, they're definitely not going to have rolling blackouts. Well, the other piece of this is to recognize that like that. You know, Southern Company has been saying a lot of nice things. They're on the board of SEPA. They do all these things. And guess who owns Alabama Power? Yep. Southern Company. So, like, the thing that makes me hate utilities every day of the week and twice on Sunday is that they absolutely engage in this hypocritical crap. 
And that brings us over to South Carolina, where Duke has uh, a, a lot of customers, and it has opposed the increase of a net metering cap there from 2% to 4% of uh, electricity sales. And uh, this has been ongoing for some time. Duke successfully shut down a bill that would increase the cap. Uh, and then there, on Wednesday night, the legislature uh, passed uh, another bill that would increase the cap. But basically, Duke... And to a lesser extent, Scana have you know directly opposed this bill. So the solar industry is you know up in arms. Uh, South Carolina solar industry is doing quite well, but things will tail off very quickly if the net metering cap is not lifted. So uh, Duke has been pretty active in solar itself, particularly in commercial industrial solar, but also making these cost shift arguments against residential solar, uh, basically saying that it's not allowed to rate-base certain investments, so why should solar companies be given the net metering subsidy? What do you guys make of Duke's argument here? Yeah, so they want to increase their, their fixed charges and make those higher so that the margins for solar are much less. Now, in South Carolina, they did raise it from 2 to 4%, and it passed in the House in the budget as an amendment to the budget bill. Um, it was a, it was going to be a clean bill, except on a technicality, um, they required a supermajority because it changed the tax code. So it had it, it made through the first and second readings, but on the third reading, uh, Duke and those guys figured out that there was this technicality and it required, um, a super majority of votes that they didn't get their 82 votes they needed. But right now, at least it's passed through the house budget bill and they just have to reconcile it with the Senate. Um, so we feel like net metering is not in bad shape, but there's still this whole issue of PERPA and having contracts. And the utilities have basically said solar has no value while they're building to natural gas units. Um, they've they've said one of the one of the tricks that they've put in is that they South Carolina has a winter peak. So New England has a summer peak. Uh, I don't think South Carolina has a winter peak or more people would be moving there. Well, even if they did, though, it's because of, you know, electric resistance heating like you do in northern Florida, and that can be changed. Let's channel the utilities argument or one of the utilities arguments. It's hard to argue against customer choice, right? When you look at the big monopolistic utility and the scrappy solar companies, it's hard not to root for the underdog. But if you're this big utility and you say, oh, I can't rate base my own solar assets, but you're giving away, uh, you're allowing solar companies to, to net meter and giving them above retail rate. And that's their argument. So like in fairness to the utilities, that seems like a legitimate argument to them, right? Just make it fair. Let us rate base our solar and then we'll give you net metering. So they are monopolies. They have the entire, the, the only time anybody gets to complete, compete with a monopoly, a regulated monopoly, which is the deal that they cut. They could decouple and become unregulated if they wanted to. But if they are a regulated monopoly and they are guaranteed a rate of return, then the only way to compete is through these other tiny programs like PERPA and NEM. It's the only way third parties can get in there and give consumers choice. But the good news, of course, is that there are Republicans like uh, Nathan Ballantyne, who just wrote um, a nice op-ed in the state uh, for the editorial board in Columbia, South Carolina, that really talks about how Duke and SCENG have come out against solar energy, and that is bad for consumers. 
Well, and I think tying this to our previous conversations around myth busting, um, I just think that when the utility shows their true colors, like they're doing in Alabama and now in South Carolina, they just serve to alienate their population even more, right? I mean, like in general, when you're a monopoly that's been in business for almost 100 years, things do start to become ones and zeros, right? And so the question now becomes, like, how does the utility company sort of compete and how should they act? And just restating what Catherine said, I think that's right, that like if the utility company wants to compete now that they have a hundred year head start, they should get rid of their regulated rate of return and just say, yeah, I think we finally will allow ourselves to you know, operate under the rules of capitalism. Yeah, but so instead what they're doing is this, like what Duke has this power forward proposal in North Carolina, which is a $14 billion grid investment, which is basically just routine capital spending. It's like less than 1% for DER, less than 5% for real investment, and it removes the margin for solar. I mean, they continue to try to do this. And that is, of course, to try to make up a rate of return by coming up with new projects, new assets, but it's disingenuous. And now we come full circle to Mike Schellenberger and why rates are really going up because of $14 billion grid hardening programs. Well, don't forget that South Carolina Electric and Gas and Santee Cooper spent like $9 billion on a nuclear plant that will never get built. And now South Carolina ratepayers are paying almost 30 bucks a month to pay for reactors that will never get built, likely. That's the situation that we're facing in the state. And so while we're quibbling over net metering, customers are already paying a lot of money for electricity that probably won't get delivered. Yeah. And remember, the more fixed charges that are on the bill, the less margin there is for solar to be effective and to be cost effective for consumers. Okay. Last one is Florida, where Sunrun got uh, the legal okay to issue equipment leases in the state, but there's still regulations that don't allow other installers. What's the latest there? I mean, it's been really messy in Florida, almost difficult to keep up with the tumultuous politics of solar, but a good story for Sunrun, I suppose. Yeah. I talked to Carolyn Golan from Vote Solar, and she kind of explained to me what was going on. She said, yes, it was limited to Sunrun. The issue is that leasing, solar leasing is legal, but the lenders don't have a lot of certainty because it's hard to tie a lease to a specific kilowatt hours for the warranty. You, you know, you can only give kind of a range of output. So they had to kind of accept that the equipment in and of itself has a value outside of the KWH generation. I think that because this approved, um, you'll see that Sonova announced they're going to go in and do the same thing. Even though it was limited to Sunrun, it seems like if it, leasing is already legal, and if the lenders for Sunrun now have more certainty, then I could imagine that for others, that's going to happen as well. Well, so just to turn back the clock a little bit, I just want to make sure that people know that we had a deal on the table in 2008 in Florida to open up the market to solar. And it was actually scuttled by feed-in tariff advocates who didn't believe in it, which then went to Gainesville, Florida. So Florida has been sort of, you know, in this nether region for about eight years and, you know, now it's finally opening up for a couple of reasons. One is because the cost of solar is down. And, and the second is because of the amendments that we passed recently. I, you know, look, I think this contract stuff is just not a big deal. Um, in Missouri, they still don't really allow um, PPAs. And we've been 
you know, financing solar projects in Missouri for a long time. So the getting around this last bit of it is actually, you know, fairly straightforward. Boy, they've had more ballot initiatives there in Florida than alligators and guns. I can't keep up with it all, but there's movement. Yeah. And what this tells us in all of these states in the Southeast is that you have to be there. You have to be on the ground fighting. You can't just, you know, we can talk about it here on the podcast, but you have to have people on the ground to do hand-to-hand combat. Because as Jigger knows, like this wouldn't have happened without people there in Florida working on this. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. That concludes our tour of the Southeast. Now, on to our free electron. Catherine, what's yours this week? Yeah, so the Sunday campaign that is run by Ken Basong, uh, he does news updates every now and then where he kind of pulls together all this different data about renewable resources. And there were three headlines to his latest um, press release that said renewable sources provide 95% of all new electrical generating capacity in the first quarter of 2018, 95% of all the new generation. Now, to put that in context, they're about renewables are about 20.69% of the capacity, you know, not generation, but capacity in the country. And actual generation is about 18.4%. But this is 95% of new generation. Then he said wind and solar now provide over a 10th of the nation's installed generating capacity. And renewables account for more than 70% of proposed generation additions over the next three years. And he cited um, FERC's energy infrastructure update report that was released on May 3rd, and then also some EIA numbers. But I thought those were very positive. Jigger, what's your free electron? So my buddy Leonardo DiCaprio uh, just invested into Kingo Energy, which is a company I've been following for a long time started by a great uh, set of entrepreneurs down in Guatemala uh, to provide um, solar home systems throughout Latin America. And they've now expanded into parts of Africa. And I just think it's another data point that shows how mainstream it's getting to really provide the you know, billion plus people in the world that don't have access to reliable electricity, um, you know, access to solar power. Yeah, the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation itself is moving from a lot of like, let's uh, save the ocean type investments, like putting money into environmental um, causes and into energy access and renewable energy. So an interesting evolution there. And in fact, uh, we just recorded a live episode of the of Julia's political climate podcast at the Solar Summit, and they had Terry Tamanen, who's who runs the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation. He talked a bit about that investment and the and you know the the movement toward more renewables investments. And he's a fascinating guy. Speaking of podcasts, Google is talking more about its audio strategy, and we all know that text and images and video are very common searchable things on Google, but not audio. Where is audio? Audio is a third-class citizen, and now Google is preparing to make audio a first-class citizen, and it is developing search techniques to make it easier for you to find bits of audio uh, you know, through like a back-end transcription service that will make it easier for you to ultimately search for audio clips or episodes that are relevant to you, to make it easier to find podcasts, and ultimately to deliver that con- uh, content on like the Google Home or you know, eventually other in, uh, in-home 
uh, voice assistants like the Amazon Alexa. So Alexa dominates. I think Google Home is second, and then there's some other in-home devices. But now there's like tens of millions of households with in-home devices, and these companies are recognize that the future of the internet is audio. So that puts you know podcasts like this in an interesting position where we you know think long term about like how can you make this information more accessible and you know create information that people are are searching for so i just thought it was very cool uh it's going to be a multi-year shift but already google is rolling out applications that make it easier to listen to podcasts across um you know your phone and your your in-home voice assistant and you know the future of the internet is audio i truly believe that just to be clear i don't like this idea why? I don't <laughs> like all the crazy stuff that I've said on this podcast to be searching. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say I thought it was a good thing for that reason because we cover so many topics and often I don't even remember when we've last talked about whatever the topic is. And so being able to search uh, by voice would be great. Yeah, Jigger, now you can have like like audiograms or like get, like audio-oriented GIFs. So if like you're mad at someone, you can get Jigger being like, utilities are stupid. Yeah, yeah, he sucks. And, yeah. and twice on Sundays. Yeah, exactly. Twice on Sunday. Okay, folks, that's the end. Search for us on any Google platform. You can get us on Android. And in fact, right now, you can listen to us from your Android phone. And if you press pause while we're in the middle of a debate or rant, you can replay it from the same spot when you get back in your house if you've got a Google Home and an Android device. By the way, I'm not advocating for any particular technology. I just think it's kind of cool what Google's doing. In the meantime, whatever app you choose, you can find us on there, and you can also give us a rating and review. Uh, Apple Podcasts is the place to go for ratings and reviews if you want to help us find new listeners. That's where most of our listeners listen, but increasingly they're coming on Android devices. Catherine, I never gave you a congratulations on your 20th wedding anniversary with Mr. Dave Hamilton. And that's why you're going to be away from us next week celebrating in Tuscany. That's right. At New Energy, Dave and I are going away, and we're going to be way offline. Hey, Jigger, have a great week next week. Are you doing anything interesting, going to any exotic places? No, just uh, my usual commute to San Francisco. All right. Well, safe travels. Everyone, we'll have an edition of What It Takes for you next week. I'm Stephen Lacey with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. We are the Energy Gang, uh, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>